Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and our guest, Professor John Klum. More on him in a second. We're live on 89.3 FM, WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Now, you want your voice heard, right? 847 866 WNUR is our number in studio. What's your opinion on what we're talking about? Call us on air, 847-866-9687. We're also streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up. All right, tonight we're joined inside the huddle by John Klum, Professor Emeritus of Theater Studies in English at Duke University. Professor Klum has written nine books about theater and staging. He's also a playwright and an experienced stage director, as well as being a librettist for contemporary opera companies. And he'll also be with us for the two-minute drill when you get all your opera headlines from the past week and our hot takes on them. That's in about 20 minutes. And then at 9.40 p.m., it's our new segment, Fantasy Fachball. Oliver and the professor face off by backing different singers tackling the same aria OBS co-host. Matt Cummings will be the judge as who makes a better case. That could get nasty very quickly. I have a bad feeling about that. I hope Cummings makes it to the studio. He's coming from a rehearsal, by the way. Strange week in sports, super quick. Cubbies out of the playoffs finally. And the Bears won again two times in a row. Oliver Camacho, what could you possibly make of that? Oh, we're talking about sports? Yes. Were you not listening? Um, no, I heard about the Cubs, which is nice. Um, I'm a little bit uh, sad about the Cubs, but uh, ultimately relieved because I had like a big performance this past weekend. And last year at this time, I also had a big performance this week during this past weekend uh, around the same time. And nobody showed up because they were all watching it the happens. playoffs or whatever was happening. So we had a decent audience for the Monteverdi Vespers that I was in, and I was prominently featured in, and I was really cross with you for not saying it was your good call last week, but you also ran out of time with those Germans. Yeah, those Germans are so intellectual. Yeah, they used every last second of the the episode. They really did. We have got so much to do on this show this week. Let us get right to it. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here with my creative consultant and co-host Oliver I consult you creatively in your whole life. And John Klum is with us as well. He's the author of numerous books on theater, including Still Acting Gay, Male Homosexuality in Modern Drama, 
and also Something for the Boys, Musical Theater and Gay Culture. He's written many articles on modern and contemporary American and British drama and musical theater. He's also the author of a number of plays, including Randy's House, and he's directed over 75 professional and university theatrical and operatic productions as an opera librettist. He wrote Heartbreak Express with music by George Lamb, which was performed in New York in 2015, and he just finished a term as board president of Rhymes with Opera, a New York-based ensemble that commissions and performs premieres of new operas, and he's Professor Emeritus of Theater Studies and English at Duke University. John, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. So um, the reason why Professor Clum, can I call you John? Sure. <laughs> the reason why John Clum is we here. Don't stand upon any ceremony um, around here. Is because, uh, as you know, I kept talking about the Monteverdi 450 project, which um, the Harris Theater presented um, last weekend. Uh, as part of that engagement, uh, the Harris Theater contracted um, Bob Kendrick from the University of Chicago to give three lecture demonstrations on these Monteverdi operas. And uh, John Clum was the first guest um, speaker, panelist. And he brought uh, some, like, videos, from the, a video of the um, Berlin Komische Oper. Komische Oper. Yeah, yeah. Orfeo, uh, which was done by a very attractive tenor. I don't even know his name, but it was done in German with puppets <sighs> and with uh, some dancing, some bacchanal at the end. And I was mesmerized by this performance uh, that you can find on YouTube, uh, Berlin Komische Oper Orfeo. Yeah. It was the event that they put the three Monteverdi operas into one day, like the full Monteverdi in one day. You like have lunch after the first one, have dinner after the second Sounds one. Um, so these are available on YouTube, and I didn't know about this. And he just played the last scene for us for the, this lecture demonstration audience. And I just suddenly felt so connected to you because I'm one of those people that like really geeks out <laughs> about something and will look for like multiple versions of things yeah, and yeah. will like find something really unusual, maybe not, you know, traditional or whatever, and just fall in love and like want to share with it. And your enthusiasm in general for opera was, you know, palpable, but in particular for that video, which I loved and I, I cannot wait to like find some time to sit down and watch the whole thing. Yeah, it's a, a wonderful director by the name of Barry Kosky. And the thing about uh, the Komische Oper is the tradition there is they get unlimited rehearsal time. Hmm. They can work on a production for months. And that mean, and it's an ensemble. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a very stable ensemble. We've worked together for years, which means that you can, you can really do some very exciting, interesting work. He's now directing probably too much everywhere. Hmm. But but uh, the work with the coma shopper is always amazing, and uh, uh, the singers there have been there for years. You, you know, way back to Walter Felsenstein, who started it, and That's who right. had these ninety-day rehearsal periods. You know, and which is, uh, as George knows, opera rehearsal periods for the stage director are. Very short. That's John. That's what we were talking about, right? Is that you have sixty people and six hours to make some art. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you are judged as, as strictly on that as if you had six weeks and two actors. <laughs> Which is why, if you are in university or conservatory and you are actually working on opera, you should have like the whole semester, like the whole quarter. To put it together, which is a luxury. Like, that's not going to happen. It's not the in, real in world. The world. Yeah. And you actually have to show up to the first rehearsal knowing the part. <laughs> that's right. 
And I'm always amazed at the discipline of the singers, the professional singers I worked with over the years, because they did come on, come in off book. And yeah. Very often, you're lucky to have an actor off book a dress rehearsal. But but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, so there, there's. I mean, you can look at your your writings. We can look at your history of directing opera or writing libretos. There's so many angles we can come at uh, for an interview. And I just feel like you're, this is probably not going to be the only time you're going to be on the show because there's so many things I want to talk about with you. But as a way of, by way of introduction to the audience, um, I just saw on the Google that you wrote a book about Terrence McNally. Yes. And so there's already one big opera connection. He's the author of um, Masterclass. The... He's a Masterclass, uh, yeah. which has just been revived in London with Emma Thompson as Maria Callas. Oh, wow. And so... and he's written a lot of opera librettos, Dead Man Walking. He oh, just, yeah. Hello, he just did, uh, <laughs> just did uh, Great Scott with Jake Hagee. Uh, I went to the opening in Dallas last year. So are you friends with Terrence McNally? I, uh, not best friends, but yeah. yes, we are very friendly. We have lunch together okay. when I'm in New York and stuff, he and his husband, and uh, who's a major Broadway producer. Hmm. And uh, uh, he's a lovely, lovely man. Okay. And, uh, uh, so, so what is yeah. your uh, – well, I mean, he's your friend. So what, what do you think of – what do you think is like the great American opera right now that should be going over to Europe as like a representation of what American oh, composers are doing right boy. now? Uh, that's because I would assume Dead Man, Dead Man Walking is like the perfect opera to show this is what don't American. Don't you feel opera like that has already come and gone though? I mean, it's still new. It's yeah, not really, Oliver. All right. No. It's um, <laughs> yeah. I I'm not sure I would turn to Jake Higgy for the great American opera, uh, but. I do. I did. Was very impressed with Dead Man Walking when I first saw it. It was the I saw it at the New York City Opera, and it was the first time I had ever heard Joyce Di Donato, mm-hmm. and it was one of those "Who is that?" Yeah. evenings. Yeah. And and uh, did you, by any chance? I don't want to derail you, but by any chance, did you see the Norma from the Met that just happened? Yes. Yeah. Did you? What did you think of Joyce Di Donato's Adolgisa? Well, I saw it in the HD mm-hmm. in a theater in Chicago where I was mainly inundated by the explosions from neighboring theaters. Um, <laughs> uh, but Transformers trans- or whatever. Trans- yeah. Transformers or whatever, dreadful, but there were a lot of explosions. I thought yeah. the Gauls or the, the Romans were really invading yeah. Gaul. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I, I wondered in the house, I have a great difficulty judging singers. Yeah. And particularly on those HDs because they're very closely mic'd. Yeah. And uh, I, had, I had difficulty judging how her voice and Rod Vanofsky's voice would have blended in the house. Yeah. They blended better than I thought they would. Yeah. And and uh, which is what you really need in that in that opera. And I thought they sounded very good together. I, I thought the director was overdoing Adelgisa's part. She mm. was everywhere all the yeah, time. She was in Costa Diva even. <laughs> she was in Costa yeah. Diva kneeling there yeah. doing something, <laughs> wishing she were somewhere else. Uh, but but it was, uh, you, you, you know, I thought I thought there, I, I think Rod Vanofsky, I heard her do Norma live four years ago with a absolute non-entity of an Adelgisa mm. uh, who will remain nameless. <laughs> but But I thought she was wonderful. And, uh, so I just want to say um, that that performance of the first duet, the Arimembranza, had me in tears. I'm yeah. like, I'm so bitter now. Like, I see so much opera and listen to so much that to move me, actually, people have to work really hard. 
And I thought that they're both of their acting. I thought that Joyce and Yana really raised the level of Sandra Rodanovsky. Because I've seen Rodanovsky plenty, you know? Yeah. And like I felt like she was pushed, like, okay, this girl here is like gonna steal the show unless I do something. Yeah. It was so moving. And like Joyce Yana seemed to have like completely lost her high notes that day of the day of the HD broadcast. Or maybe she's just trying to sing more like a big girl to blend with Rodanovsky. Yeah. yeah, I wondered about that yeah. too. Yeah, so she did some lower, you know, transposition or lower uh, options, you know. But just like the phrasing in that duet, like. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I was really blown away by that. Okay, so we've talked about opera. People know where you're coming from a little bit. Um, I want to like make this a little bit gay since uh, I, I am a card carrying opera queen and I'm I'm proud about it. But, you know, my generation and the generation younger, uh, let's not say my generation, let's say the millennials, because I'm not a millennial. I'm on the edge of millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. Um, I never know what these yeah, categories there's weird, there's quite like, are. Like, the, it depends on like when you were born and whatever, you know. So um, I just missed the cutoff, I think, by like three or four years to be the middle generation between Xers and millennials. I forget what they call them. Um, but at any rate, I really enjoy having this like expertise and you know feeling that there's something that I spent a lot of my time listening to and studying so that I could be an expert on something you know and performing yeah that too yeah yeah. but um, nowadays I find that people don't like this label so much uh, of opera queen you know and on top of which, there's so much information out there. There's YouTube and there's the internet so that people can be an expert on anything at any given moment, even when they're not. Or know? on nothing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And um, I feel that my generation and the generation just younger than me um, don't really care about opera as much as I thought that they would, as much right. as I do. <clears throat> and my theory about it, I might have said this on the show before, is that um, the generation older than me that should have been like my gay mentor, um, they all died, you know, or a lot of them died uh, because of AIDS, the AIDS crisis. And so I. Some of us are still around. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, you know, I learned, I mean, I had great mentors when I was growing up just in music in general, but I didn't have anybody who like held my hand and showed me opera. I like went to the public library and I just brought a bunch of scores and a bunch of records and CDs and just sat, you know, with earphones and just read and listened. And that's basically how I got started, you know? And now, I mean, I wish that I had somebody like you growing up who could like take me and explain things to me and like whatever, describe Falk or describe phrasing or describe, you know, whatever, like Leonie yeah. Reason, like, like you just said to me a minute ago, it was like an amazing actress and like maybe she's not technically great, but you know, these types of things are like great little tidbits that I think really help people understand the art. Yeah. So I've already said something for a long time. I want you to kind of respond in general if you could. <laughs> Oh, well, yes. Um, well, I think, as, as, as I've said to you before, I think there was a time when uh, opera was almost the lingua franca for a generation of gay men. That is, opera and musicals to some extent, and Judy Garland to some extent. Mm. Uh, but but that opera was in that um, it was sort of for, for gay men what sports was for straight men. That is, it was... Our world, it was kind of a coded world, and mm-hmm. 
uh, you felt um, that this, in a way, you were communicating your gayness by communicating <laughs> your love of opera. I wonder if I'm communicating my gayness enough. <laughs> and and so it was a very different it was a very different world. And I think, yeah, you would go to the Met on any given night, and there were you know a significant portion of gay men there, mm-hmm. and not so much anymore. Uh, and those that are are ancient like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, which isn't totally true because I work with this, you know, with new opera in New York and I'm working all the time with gay men in their thirties who are, you know, passionate about all this, not so much mm. in their twenties, but yeah. in their thirties. But it was a different world in which that was a kind of, it was like you were in a club mm-hmm. and that, that part of being gay was, a, and part of being gay was you were expected to be sort of cultured in yeah. that sense, uh, cultured and ironic, yeah. Uh, uh, but but <laughs> and ironic about being cultured, uh, but yeah, I think that was true. And and the, you know, your whether you were in love with Callas or Tibaldi or Milanoff or whatever. And and although I think the fandom for Milanoff usually was more ironic than the fandom for other people, um, that that I think it was a different a different age. And yes, some of that age died out with with. Uh, um, AIDS and some of the age died out. Some of it died out because I don't think uh, the attention span for opera is, you know, it demands a certain attention span to but make it through Valkura. People have that attention span. I mean, they, they sit down, they watch like eight hours of their favorite TV show all in one sitting, you know, or 10 hours. Or, you yeah, know. But, but I remember somebody told me a story the other day about, about uh, a young person who loves Hamilton and knows the uh, which is sort of an opera, and knows the the uh, original cast album by heart and mm-hmm. so on. And so her parents took her to Hamilton, and she said, oh, it's too long. I can't sit through that. I mean, it's one huh. thing to to listen to it and memorize it, but having to sit passively through it was something that, that she was incapable well, of. Well, I mean, I, I've never seen Hamilton, but people who have seen it that um, have seen it like recently— Says they say it's like the Rocky Horror Pictures. Like everybody like sings along. Everybody knows the songs. Like they react to the song even before yeah. it starts. How incredibly annoying that would be. Yeah, I know, especially if it's your first time. You know, fortunately, my audience was was the last time I saw it here yeah. was kind of quiet. But but um, yeah, I mean Hamilton is a it's a great show. It is. I have a whole argument about it. It's it's one of the first straight musicals, but that's a whole other... <laughs> we don't want to go there. This is an opera show. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, Job, because one of your quips before the show was that gay men talk opera and straight men talk sports. That's... Yeah, though I think there are some gay men that would be offended by that. Uh, yeah. I, I, I know I know gay men who are religious about sports. But, uh, uh, you can can you introduce the, them to the me? straight male camp that's into <laughs> Can you opera. introduce them to me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I don't know if you've, I've answered your question about that, but I do think, yeah, I, I don't, you don't see many young people at the opera. Anymore. Yeah. And how are we going to fix that? I mean, I know this is like something that, oh, well, that people talk about all the time in like board meetings and like whatnot, like how to get the young audience in there. But well, if you don't have, edu- if you, if you don't have uh, music education mm-hmm. and so on, and, and the choirs that used to sing classical music in high schools and mm-hmm. colleges now are show choirs. Yeah. And uh, that there's just, you know, there's no exposure to classical music. That might be, I mean, that might be a very simple answer, but the, maybe the, the best one, because I had a great teacher in high school who 
didn't let us sing pop music. And like we had like really great voices that wanted to do mm-hmm. pop music. He says, no, you'll sing flat. You won't learn how to read music if you do that. You know, so he made us sing Handel, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and Bach chorales and stuff like well, that. Well, I you know? remember the horror of walking across the Duke campus one day. The, the Duke choir used to do the Messiah every mm-hmm. year with the full orchestra and everything. And I was walking behind these kids who came out of it and said, that wasn't bad. I wonder if he wrote anything else. <laughs> <laughs> that guy and you don't know whether you want to do a professorial moment at that point and say, excuse me. <laughs> John, you have a show coming up next year, May 2018, Rumpelstiltskin, music yeah. by George Lamb and Ruby Fulton. Uh, is it based on the fairy tale? It is very loosely based on the fairy tale, yeah. I mean, it's it riffs off of it in very strange and odd ways. Uh, I've worked with George before many times and I've known Ruby because she's co-artistic director of the company and they always come at me as librettists with these strange you know with these sort of ideas that they want worked out and one idea was that Rumpelstiltskin was going to have two voices a male voice and a female voice right so then I had to write a whole backstory about why Rumpelstiltskin has a male voice and a female voice and that took about half an hour of opera okay <laughs> and 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 uh then uh i this which is the way i work because i wrote used to write plays i needed a backstory on the girl and i needed a so it's a very long uh version of rumpelstiltskin in which everybody has a rel- relatively long backstory and rumpelstiltskin has two voices and um it has a, a very interesting kind of ending, I think. And what's fascinating about this is George and Ruby, as artistic directors of this company, it's the tenth anniversary production of the company, uh, wanted to write an opera together. And so Is this rhymes with opera? Yeah, about? rhymes with opera. Yeah. And so they wanted to write an opera together, and then the question was how they split up this opera, you know. Mm-hmm. That's one and uh what they've done is split up characters. And uh, it's been very interesting, kind of these conference calls with the two of them of, of, of how we're working this out. But what I've heard of it so far is beautiful, and they have very different composing styles. So it's going to be very interesting how this thing gels. Are you in any way playing with gender? Since the... Yeah, very much playing with gender. Okay. And um, are you using the same singer for these two voices? Is it like one of these like, no, countertenors that sings baritone or something? No, like no, that? no, okay. no. No, there are, it's, a, it's a, a baritone and a soprano. Okay. Make up Rumpelstiltskin. And then there's a tenor who has three roles. Uh, the witch, the king, and the father, and then there is uh, uh, another baritone. So it's, but it's 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 very interesting how it works out. And they also wanted an opera in which the co- audience was the chorus. Hmm. I love it. And so it's like a Bach, you know, like the old that days cool. of the Bach Passions, yeah. where the audience is going to be taught a kind of chorale at the beginning and the lyrics to the chorale keep changing but every once in a while the audience comes in and does this chorale reflecting awesome. on what's happened in the score so far so it's going to be a that kind is, of weird that event that is awesome yeah. that is very cool uh, hey look we got to step aside for one second after the break it's everything you need to know in headlines from Opera Land in the past week uh-huh. it's called the two minute drill it's up next and it's only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines from Opera Land. Friday marked opening night for Houston Grand Opera's 63rd season. Instead of performing at the Wortham Center, which is still under construction after Hurricane Harvey, the curtain went up on Verde's La Traviata at the George R. Brown Convention Center. Retired opera singer and Grammy nominee Dan Kempson has written a moving article for the writing website Medium on sexual assault in opera, saying, quote, It happens for the same reason it happens in Hollywood, because those in power are often perpetrators, and those who aren't perpetrators allow it to happen. The current Metropolitan Opera revival of the Zeffirelli production of Puccini's Turandot features a cast led by Oksana Daika and Alexandras Antonenko, but last Tuesday the star was James Morris being honored for his 1,000th performance with the company. Exit stage right baritone Robert Honeysucker, a fixture of Boston's musical landscape over four decades. He's died after suffering a heart attack, and he was 74. And on this day... The birthdays of Albert Lortzing, the German composer in 1801, and Ned Roram, American composer. Happy 94th birthday to him. That's your two-minute drill. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and oh yeah, Matt Cummings. That's right, Opera Box Score, hitting you up right now on a Monday night here at WNUR. George Cedarquist, hanging out with the likes of Oliver Camacho. And Matt Cummings just walked in the door. Cummings is here <laughs> as well, and our special guest, Professor John Klum. Thank you so much for being on the show. My tonight. pleasure. We'll let Matt get settled in when we talk about some of these stories, but maybe Matt will want to chime in about the Dan... Was it Dan Kempson? Is his yeah, office? Dan Kempson. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cummings is still in the uh, makeup department, but he should be in shortly. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, Dan Kempson. I, I, I do... Uh, know him. I did not know that he had retired from opera singing. Was he a baritone? He was a baritone. Was he a bear hunk? Exactly. Well, he mentions that in this article. It's on the Medium website, which is a, a, a writing platform. And he talks very candidly, I would say, very, very candidly about sexual assault in opera. And he comes from it Uh, from a gay perspective, being uh, gay, married, and 32 years old, as he says, living in New York City. He talks about donors at patron dinners hitting on him. He talks about conductors hitting on him. He talks about friends who have had uh, experiences at young artist programs when program Mm -hmm. directors have made sexual advances to them. Again, very candid article. Link is on our website, operaboxscore.com. Okay, you know, I, I think we probably have all of our own stories about this. I know I certainly do, and, and that's as a straight man, you know. I'm not trying to 
take over the Me Too hashtag, but like this is this is far reaching and this is serious. Oliver, what's your take? Huh. Well, I, kn- I mean, after this story was published, I saw a lot of people sharing it and adding their own voice to the topic. And like, this is stuff that I've heard of. And I'm friends with, I'll just, I'm friends with somebody who, um, you know, did some of these young arts programs and was very attractive. And I know was the exact type of person who was like asked to like, you know, come to the pool and like wear as little clothing as possible, this type of thing. And uh, I always said, okay, well, you're a good looking guy. Of course, that's going to happen to you. But now I realize how prevalent it was. And it wasn't just him, you know. Um, yeah, and it's it's a little creepy. Um, I, I feel maybe lucky that I am not in a position of power in the opera world because maybe I might be like that. Like, I'm just going to put it out there. Like, I'm a very flirty guy. I'm like, I flirt with anything and everybody. <laughs> and I think that I could be in trouble right now because I, a lot of people misunderstand my intentions. I'm, I'm sometimes very forward, but I'm, I, I think I'm harmless. But, you know, maybe people would not be so appreciative of, of some of the things that I say to people very, you know, frankly. And I, I'm thinking jokingly, you know? Yeah, I think I think there's a... I think it's a problem in show business in general, if I may call opera show business. And I think the fear for young singers is if I say no, am I going to be out of work? Um, uh, Which may be a true case in some cases, but it also may be a perception in some cases. And I think there is always that fear about what do I do? I want a career. And it's unfair to put anybody in that situation. Um, but I think it happens everywhere in show business. I'm I'm surprised that people are shocked at Harvey Weinstein as if this hasn't happened for the entire history of the film industry, mm-hmm. for instance. And, uh, you know, it's this sort of moral outrage at something that has been unfortunately the case for, for as long as probably there's been show business. Um, it's exactly right. In the article, Kempson says, quote, you could point to the Barry Hunks effect where young singers are objectified and told their abs are more important than their voice. He goes on to say, and, and this is the argument that I think some people would make, well, you're like, we're making art here and like, you know, sometimes it's not, it's not going to be, it's not going to be safe. And it's like, Kempson says that's crap. I could not agree with him more. Yes, there are times when things are not going to be comfortable in the room but there's a big difference between it being safe and it being comfortable and that is where the line gets blurred and that is where as Kempson says people in power the often the perpetrators they are the people that take advantage of their clout yeah and there's also the fact that I think there's a lot of I was thinking even watching the Norma HD, why did we have those scantily clad hunks in the front of the stage? What did that have to do with Norma? Or the Joffrey Ballet slash lyric opera production of... Of Orfeo. Oh, those just, costumes the guys yeah, were in—they were basically naked on stage. They were basically <laughs> naked on stage. Yeah, yeah. and 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 uh, I think there is, you know, there's a, there always been a lot of objectification of women in show business, but mm-hmm. I think there is also, uh, in in some aspects of show business, a lot of objectification of the male body. Do we now. have to blame Nathan Gunn for having the first six pack? to be displayed on stage. Did you have the first six-pack? I don't know. Leonard Warren certainly didn't yeah. have one. Um, yeah, I've, I, it, it may be, but I think it's 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 the 
supernumerary effect at the Met, where you always have to have a bunch of hunks up there for no reason yeah. at all, is getting is getting a little bizarre. Well, they know their audience, you know. They well, know their audience. And having the conversation is tricky, right? Again, as Kempson says in the article, quote, the only reason I can write this, even without identifying a single perpetrator, is because I've, meaning he, have left the business. So, like, if you are in the business, you know, like any of us on this show, and you are in a position, whether it's your blog or tweeting or your radio show, you're in a position to say, you know what? We're not gonna. We're not gonna stand for that. And we're gonna call people out, and uh, hey, maybe maybe our careers are gonna get axed, but you know maybe we're gonna actually help to to turn the tide on this. Yeah, in all fairness, though, George, I think there are people in the business who respect no, mm-hmm. you know, who aren't gonna penalize you for saying no, thank you. Or something. I, I, I think there. I, I don't think everybody in the business is predatory. I mean, they may be flirtatious. They may ask the question, but I don't think everybody is necessarily predatory. Couldn't agree with you more, John. And if and if those people are are going to to punish you and fire you because you're saying no, like, are those the people you want to work with? Honestly. Anyway. Like, yeah. do you think so little of who they are that you still value their good opinion? That's from the Stoics. I mean, that's that's just common sense. It's a tricky, difficult topic. Uh, Matt Cummings, just want to get him uh, introduced here and on the show as well. Hey, Matt, thanks for coming out tonight. Hey, it's good to be back in the studio. Hot off of a rehearsal. That's true. <laughs> uh, if, if you've seen the pictures from Houston Grand Opera, if you've seen the pictures from the Wortham Center, and you're in this business of opera making, it... it the effect is profound. It, the, uh, everyone has their connection to this tragedy. I'm just going to look at it through my window, through my little window of opera, but the damage is extensive. And mm-hmm. so here is this company that looked around for numerous venues and has ended up at this convention center and is still doing their shows. Yeah, they're a li- from what I've written, the t- they're a little worried about the acoustics, as one would be in a convention center, and I hope that works out for them. Uh, I've, uh, I have a strange optimism about it, George. I think that, you know, maybe a little innovation, and maybe it's going to force a little innovation and make it uh, a in- very interesting traviata. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Again, the whole quest of opera in the 21st century is how to get opera out of the opera house. And what if this was HGO's chance that it was given to them? I'm not trying to make... Lemonade out of lemons. I understand lives were lost. I understand that there is, uh, uh, HGO is going to lose anywhere between five and fifteen million dollars because of these disaster. Yeah. But hey, whether they like it or not, they have put their audience in a new space. They've taken them out of their comfort zone. Technically, when you look at the way that venue is set up, you can look at this video. It's on our website, operaboxscore.com. Shows you how they transform this space. Mm-hmm. The audience has a very different relationship to the piece. Is that a bad thing? I think for this particular show, they're going to be very forgiving about that, yeah. especially the high-level patrons, which you sort of have to take care of because they're the ones that are funding it usually. And particularly in Texas. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think they have a lot of you know uh, goodwill in the bank. But uh, I'm not sure if, if that is – if I want to go see Traviata in a convention center. Like – 
I, I, whenever I see opera, I want it. If it's an opulent opera, if it's decadent music, I want to feel like I'm spending money and seeing something decadent. And you know? seeing the real estate on stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm getting to be the opposite. I was thinking when George was reading that headline about James Morris appearing in this thousand performance yeah. and, and that god-awful Zeffirelli turn dot and Thank thinking, you, you know, there maybe we should have a game of productions we'd like to see destroyed by natural disasters, <laughs> and that turned out would be the top of my list, I think. But <laughs> uh, We're almost uh, out of time by this segment. I'm going to throw it over to Cummings, though, super quick. Cummings, as you'll remember, aced the pop quiz. The hard, the stupidest quiz, I have to say. You're, you're stupid. It was so hard, that quiz. No, it wasn't. Unnecessarily Dude, he got, hard. He got like... Like an A. He got because he figured you out. It's okay. not because he actually knew the answers to the quiz. So Cummings, put your money where your <laughs> mouth is. Today is the birthday of Albert Lortzing. Could you please name an opera that was composed by Albert Lortzing? Did he write Der Wildschutz? Can't you just go away? <laughs> yes, he did write Der Wildschutz. Uh, Matt Cummings, everybody. That's that's his skill. That is <laughs> Apparently, he memorized the opera encyclopedia. So. <laughs> when I was in undergrad at Northwestern, the op shop director, the opera workshop director, that would he would do big scenes programs that would involve just about everyone in the class, and he loved those really obscure operettas. Mm. And when he would bring them up in class, he would make fun of us for not knowing them. So I de- decided oh, I was going to learn <laughs> all of them. <laughs> But since we're talking about professors making fun of you, did you want to add to the Dan Kempson story before we leave this segment? Do you have any stories of roommates or colleagues or even your own stories like, oh, that was so oh, creepy, you know? Absolutely. I think it would be I think it would be pretty hard to find someone who hasn't felt who hasn't felt that way in, at some point through within this business. And I think a lot of the problem comes from the fact that you are so exposed in every aspect of it. You know, it's a, it's so personal, that type of performance. Your instrument is really you. It's mm-hmm. your voice. It's your body. It's so related to your identity mm-hmm. that it, it, that you always are on the line when you're, when you're putting yourself out there. Yeah, so it, it makes taking advantage of you that much easier. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I'm, I feel like I, I like it once again. I said, I'm so glad I'm not in a position of power because I think I might be one of these people that would be like on the receiving end of this. But I feel like when you get when you get to this level of making art together, with people that you're just open, you know, and like you can say things to people, and you shouldn't be afraid of what you say to people. And sometimes you have to say things that are um, inappropriate sometimes to get a response out of somebody, you know, like Donna Anna and Don Giovanni scene, you know, first act, like. You have to talk about rape, you know? Yeah, but... And the, you have to get the actress to get to go there, you know? And how do you do that without referencing rape, you know? Yeah. But there, there's a way to talk about it in a way that's respectful, in a way that's considering other people's boundaries, and there's a way to totally disregard them. And so that that type of open lines of communication is, I think, the biggest way that we can circumvent, circumvent any sort of misunderstanding mm-hmm. that happens. And even when you take all of those misunderstandings out of the equation, there's still a huge amount of abuse that happens. And that, that is definitely what I have felt and seen and heard about. And I believe keep that conversation going. Hey, we're going to step aside again on opera box score. When we get back, it's our new segment, fantasy Fachball. Oliver takes on the professor in a battle of the singers with Cummings judging, oh, there will be blood. But it's only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3. 
live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then, give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. Who's on your team? Time for Fantasy Fuckball. And it's Oops. only on Opera Box Scores. <laughs> I love Norm. It's when did he record that? Uh, he, he did that last month or so. Oh. It took me a while to get him to pronounce the word correctly without Fuckball. swearing, Fuckball. which we obviously can't do. Uh, it's Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Full house tonight. George Cedarquist here along with Oliver Camacho mm. and Matt Cummings. And our guest, Professor John Klum. John, thank you so much for being on the show mm. tonight. Mm. This, great fun. this segment... It used to be called TKO, and, and then it didn't really make sense anymore. And so we mixed it up a little bit. But is essentially, we take two different singers tackling the same aria in some little sections. Two of our panelists are going to uh, go head-to-head, and each back a singer. Cummings is going to judge. Oliver, what else do we need to know? Well, um, so there are so many matchups that we could potentially do um, with somebody like John Klum, who actually knows singers, George Cedarquist, and listens to recordings. <laughs> um, smile when you say Shots yeah. fired. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about the lyric season, and uh, we were at some point talking about Matthew Polanzani, and then we started talking about what else is coming, you know, Turandó, and right now um, there's... Rigoletto and and Valkyra, yeah, and like my Wagner rep is not great yet. It will be one day, but um, I'm not there yet. So I think we kind of landed on Mozart. That's something that everybody should know. And I feel like it's a nice time to revisit uh, for me an evergreen topic: uh, singing in Mozart style, Uh, Uh, which is something that uh, you know. Hopefully, our audience has heard me say these things before. But it's nice if you're a new audience member. A uh, new listener uh, to to hear some thoughts about how to sing Mozart. So I'll say a couple of like my own rules about Mozart. Uh, one that um, you should observe the rhythm and you should sing, you know, the rhythms as written generally, but still sound human and not sound too instrumental. That there should not be a, a dramatic change in. Um, dynamics within a phrase uh, that, you know, you never like really like pull the trigger, so to speak, you know, in the middle of a phrase in a Mozart aria, unless you're like Vitellia or something like that. Um, That you have to think of like the classical era elegance, you know, and there is still like that it's coming from the high Baroque, you know, it just came after the high Baroque so that there's still emphasis on dance rhythms and uh, as a result, like emphasis on like strong beats and there's hierarchy within 
a phrase, like there's going to be a word or a couple of points in the phrase that definitely should be musically the highlights of it. And because Mozart was such, so good at setting librettos that usually it falls an important word in the phrase, but you have to observe those things. Um, yeah, that tone, I mean, pitch is, is really important. And tone quality is important. Like you should sing, try to sing beautifully when you sing Mozart. Yeah, I, I, I would add a couple things. We're in a weird, uh, for the past God knows how many years, we've been in a strange thing with Mozart singing because most Mozart singing is done in houses about five times too large for an yeah. authentic Mozart style, uh, like the lyric. Um, I've, I'm agreed with everything that, that Oliver says, but I would ask... I want to know why they're singing this. That mm -hmm. is, I, I, I want to know there's some sense of what this aria is about. And I think sometimes you can turn Mozart arias into kind of abstract music. It's what bothers me about dealing with individual arias outside the context of an opera in general, because I want to know who Ferrando is and what he's doing and how this connects to his second act aria that isn't cut. Yeah. And and so on, and and know that there's a dramatic arc to this character, and what this aria has to do with that dramatic arc. Arc, but at any rate, um, yeah, I, um, I, I too am very concerned in Mozart with phrasing, and with not throwing too many tricks in. In a way, I wish there's no YouTube of Polenzani singing this aria, and just well, the, he, I think he was in the HD broadcast of it, so there's got to be somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. not on YouTube, interestingly. Okay. And and Polenzani pulls a lot of tricks in this aria, mm -hmm. head tones and diminuendos and stuff all over the place in the aria, um, uh, which is kind of interesting, but it's a little bit hokey. For him, who's usually a very clean singer. And right. so who is singing in our competition? Oh, uh, okay. you want to so, give your boy? Yeah, well, I, well the, the first, we're going to do this in four rounds. We're going to break up the aria. I hope we got time for all four, buddy. We do, we do. We'll see. Uh, we have, um, yeah, we have like 15 minutes left or less. Okay. Uh, we have four four rounds here. We'll start with the first clip. Uh, this, uh, The first round starts with Professor Klum's choice, a Russian tenor currently on the scene, born in 1981. He's a kid. Uh, this is going to be the A section, and then right after that you'll hear my tenor, the French-Canadian Leopold Simoneau.
All right. So we have Matt Cummings in the studio specifically because he's a tenor and because he's our co-host uh, to tell us what he thought about both those performances based on the kind of the criteria we set up and maybe your own criteria for Mozart singing. For sure. The, one of the words that gets thrown around a lot that I can't remember, I didn't know if I heard either of you mention is grace and elegance mm-hmm. is really important in Mozart. And that kind of encompasses everything that both of you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And while I didn't really think that either one of them was particularly lacking in that, I definitely heard it more from Leopold Simono. And I'll tell you why. And it is the speed of vibrato is so mm-hmm. consistent throughout every range, throughout every registration. I never really heard any gear shifts and I didn't really, and it would just was straightforward and very beautiful, and so I'm going to have to give him the edge in the first round. And it was so legato, too. Yes. Yeah. John, do you want to say anything yeah. in defense? I want to. I want to start saying I, I when uh, Oliver said he wanted to choose this aria, I I picked Miranov because I think he's a very interesting singer. He's basically a Rossini singer, mm-hmm. not a Mozart singer. He has sung this role, um, and I like the, I like his unique voice. I've never heard him live. It's I have spicy, trouble, his tone quality. Know, yeah. I, I have trouble judging a singer I've never heard live. Mm. Uh, he's doing the Gluck Orfei production we had here in in L.A. in the spring. Um, my test for this aria, by the way, is un dolce ristoro. Okay. Uh, That's a really hard phrase. It sounds so easy when both of them sing it, but yeah. it's really hard. It's very hard. And if you listen to most of the people singing this, they break or you know it's a lunge or yeah. something to yeah. get up there. And both of them have a beautiful arc on that phrase, mm. which to me, yeah. you know, that sweet restoration yeah. that's uh, that's so important to the meaning of the aria to me. Um, I, I mean, I'd take them both. Uh, I just, I... I I think Miranov is a little more effortless in that phrase than than Simono okay. is. Well, let's go on to the to the B section here, a little bridgey moment. <laughs> That was not what I expected at the end there. <laughs> I, I, I really am having a hard time finding fault with either of them. I'm mm-hmm. having to nitpick a lot. What I do like about Miranov in that round in particular is that it is a, it, it sits more in a different part of the voice. It sits a little lower than the A section. And so there's 
uh, the opportunity to bring a little bit more warmth and a little bit more spice into the voice, mm-hmm. which I think he did really successfully. See, Leopold Simono always sings so beautifully and always sings so gracefully, but it, it, I didn't feel like he quite had the same amount of a palette of tonal color. He doesn't have a strong chest register. Uh, Simono's voice is very mixed and high, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so it makes the high phrases sound so sweet and almost effeminate, you know? Yeah. Well, he sounds like almost a traditional French tenor. If yeah. you listen back to Georges Thiel or Laguet or someone, yeah. I mean, it's that very French sound. Okay. Taking a cue from George, we're going to listen to the next two clips in a row. So don't, we'll just go to the end, George, and All we'll, right, we'll get Matt's it. final judgment there. You got it. All right. <clears throat> is the coda to the aria.
right, so final thoughts, final cases here. Okay, so I'm just going to say that obviously Mironov is singing in an era where there's a little bit more like rhythmic vitality and the Karyon recording that Simino was on was kind of languid. But it's a I, little slow. Yeah, <laughs> but it gives Simino so much time to make his phrases so beautifully. And for those of us tenors who've worked in this aria, we know that this is a passaggio buster, this aria. Yeah, yeah, and by the last yes. page, you have no tone left. And he manages the most beautiful tone in the last page of this music. And the other thing is you've got to seem not to breathe at all in that aria. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels there like you There is no can't. place to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> What I really liked about those last two clips is that it showed the two ways that you can make that return of the A section work. It can yeah. either be turning up the throttle like Miranov, or really just indulging in how tender it is, uh, the way that Simono did it. And I am co- I'm convinced by both of their interpretations. I'd have to say, on the whole, Simono wins it by yes. a hair for me. Yes. It's just so effortless. I'm glad I you can't picked a side, it. by the way. <laughs> yes, thank you for picking a side. <laughs> I, I just have to say that like there's this kind of like... Comedia dell'arte trope of like the lover, you know, character and like how does the lover behave, you know, how do they act, how do they talk? And Simino is that, you know, he has all of those affectations or affects, you know, of the lover in this aria. Yeah, I've, I've, there's an argument for almost overdoing the aria bit in the context of the mm-hmm. opera because mm-hmm. Ferrando is, I mean, is he really feeling this or is he performing feeling these feelings yeah. right now. I mean, this is so much an opera about performance and reality, but then we're mm. not directing it tonight, yeah. so. Well, it looks like we're out of time. I know George wants to wrap this up. Yeah, we do need to. Good wrap. call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Oh, but it goes so fast. Sorry, gentlemen, we do need to wrap up the show. Professor John Clum, thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Matt Cummings, appreciate you coming up to the studio. Yeah, thanks for having me. You got a good call or a bad call this week? Buddy? I've got a great call for this week, which is the reason I didn't make it up to here till 9.30 was because I was rehearsing for the Constellation Men's Ensemble concert this weekend. We're doing two concerts that are going to be evening meditations in the style of a Compline service. Uh, they're Saturday evening at 7.30 at Church of the Atonement in Edgewater, and Sunday evening at 7.30 at Wicker Park Lutheran Church. And information about them is available on Facebook. I would love to see people there. This is opera box score, not polyphony box score. Yeah, well, <laughs> most of us have been in an opera before. Uh, my quick good call is that Nathan Gunn is giving a master class on Wednesdays for free at Music Institute of Chicago in Evanston. Starts at wow. 10 o'clock in the morning. Nathan Gunn's a great teacher, actually. He's supposedly yeah. a wonderful yeah. teacher, yeah. Dominic Kuniger, that was the Orfeo. Yes, and from he's the fantastic. Komisha Oprah production. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager of WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And you can leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Professor John Klum and co-host Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera at a college football game near you. We're back next Monday at 9 p.m. Central to celebrate National Opera Week and our annual Halloween Spooktacular with Math and Black simultaneously. Join us if you dare. 
Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment. (laughs) 